Well, if you've been watching the news at all this last week, then you've probably noticed that many of the stations are picking up the impeachment trial for President Trump, which is heating up. Now, this case, uh, if you've been following along at all, uh, it's covering allegations that center on whether or not there was some kind of quid pro quo between a deal that was being offered to Ukraine and some kind of action that was being asked to be taken from them. Uh, More specifically, the question is, did Trump require Ukraine to investigate a company Joe Biden's son worked for in exchange for military aid? Now, at its heart, the president is being accused of using the power of the highest office in the land for his own personal political advantage. In our generation, we have viewed the exploitation of power to take, take, take on every level. From parents, to pastors, to producers, to presidents, we've seen all kinds of authority that has at least been accused with using their power and authority to take rather than to give, to see what they can get rather than what they can give. Now, both the problem of leaders that are, take, that are takers colliding with this human desire for leadership that is giving is an ancient one right? You get that? We, I think as humans, we want leadership that really understands what it's like to have much taken from us. And we want a kind of leader that, that understands that, that longing, that desire, that injustice, that sense that this wrong needs to be righted. We want someone that understands that, while at the same time wanting them to be a, a generous kind of leadership that gives. That is an ancient desire, In fact, we're back in our David series this week in 1 Samuel 30. And it's a book that opens up with a number of leaders on different levels who are showing that they actually are those who are in it for what they can get rather than what they can give. Uh, You'll remember that 1 Samuel opens up with Eli who has two sons, Phinehas and Ferb. I'm just making sure you guys are paying attention. Sometimes I get a feel that maybe y'all aren't paying attention. It's Phinehas and Hophni. Just making sure. But they were takers described as worthless men, sons of Belial, uh, who did not know God in 2.12. Now these priests would demand their portion of an offering that was to be given to God up front immediately. And and they threatened that if you do not do this, that I'm going to take it by force. They're takers. Of course, that reminds me of another taker in this book, another son of Belial, Nabal, who looks so much like Saul, in chapter 25. See, this wasn't God's design for leadership. If you look at the scriptures, the Bible isn't commending these men and their leadership. No, instead, we find in Deuteronomy 17, 15, that God is encouraging his people that he would choose a king for them in the land, a generous king known for not greedily taking, but as a brother from amongst them, who was generous a giver, and a lover of God's word. Well, in 1 Samuel 8, 5, you'll remember that the people came asking for a king. But they weren't asking for a king like God promised to give them. They were asking for a king like the nations. And so there, you'll remember that God tells them that he will give them the king that they, catch this, deserve. And God describes that king in 1 Samuel 8, 
11 to 18. Now let me give you a short abbreviated version of these verses and tell me if you pick up in your ear the theme of this king. He says, this king, he will take your sons and send them to fight for me. Uh, they will, this king will take your daughters and put them to work for himself. He will take your best land. He will take your best fruit. He will take your best servants. He will take your best animals and you will cry out for a better king. Did you catch that? And so often, we don't like the leadership over us, but so often the leadership over us isn't the leadership we want. It's actually the leadership that we deserve. So what kind of king will God give his people? He's a taker. He's a taker. He's literally called a taker six times. That's a snapshot of Saul and every other worldly leader. They are takers who look to rise above their brothers on the goods that they've taken from their brothers. But today we see a better spirit-anointed king chosen by God to lead his people, King David. Now, 1 Samuel 30 marks David's movement in the book of 1 Samuel towards the throne. And here's what we're going to see this morning. Our big idea is this, that Jesus is a victorious king who understands what's been taken and gives generous gifts. Jesus is the victorious king who understands what's been taken and he gives generous gifts. I will see this in a number of ways, but let me pray and ask for God's help this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning as we come before you, we are just asking again for your special help to have eyes to see and ears to hear your word today. Father, we need you not to harden our hearts, but to soften them towards your words. Father, these are the very words that come from you. You are speaking, and Lord, we ask that you would speak in us today in a way that would transform us, bring life to the dead. And Lord, we pray that those who are living will be sanctified and transformed in the image of your son, Jesus. And it's the great name of your son that we do pray. Amen. First, notice the Messiah is a brother who understands loss in verses 1 to 6. The Messiah is a brother who understands loss. Now, chapters 28 to 29 take place over three days, and they flow right into chapter 30 where we find ourselves today. Now, Achish, you'll remember that Philistine, has ordered David and his men to join the Philistine fight against Israel in chapter 28. David faked it so good that he was for Achish that Achish invites him to join them in battle against Israel. And the only thing that stops him in chapter, chapter 29 is the reality that Achish brings in David, and as the other Philistine leaders are watching, they said, man, we're going to have to start calling you crazy horse, because there is no way that we are bringing with us the man that walks into the theme music, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. That is not a good battle plan. And so he says, David, you're going to have to go back. I don't know why, but they won't trust you like I do. And then in verses 1 to 6, they pick up with David returning from that long journey of being rejected by the Philistines. And look at what it says, beginning in verses 1 through 6 again. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. 
And then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David and his men, they've just traveled 100 miles in that round trip up to Aphek to join Achish in battle, only to discover that the Amalekites had burned their homes when they returned, and they had taken all of their wives. They took all of their children, and they took all of their servants. The raiders got raided. Remember, that's what David's been doing. And David's legion of doom, who raided the land including Amalekites, over this 16-month period. You'll remember that they had left no prisoner when they were out, and now they are experiencing what it is to have everything taken from them in a moment. All of the losses. You know, that's great loss. You'll remember that Job had everything taken from him. But this is like that and multiplied times 600 As these men together collectively are raising their voices and weeping and weeping until they had no energy or tears to weep anymore. In fact, if you look up that phrase for how they wept until they had no more strength to weep, it actually translates in the English to they ugly cried. All day and all night. You can imagine, these are grown men warriors weeping. Now, I can't imagine the scene. Manly men weeping over their losses. They are grieving helplessly. Have you ever found yourself where these guys are? You know, the holidays are really full of hope for many. In fact, many of our nights at the dinner table, as me and Gia are talking to the boys, have them angling for some gift. Uh, We talked about giving our Christmas away uh, just as a a noble thing to do as Christians uh, one meal, and we almost didn't make it away from the table alive. But while holidays can be super hopeful for some, you know, they can also be really discouraging for others. In fact, psychology today says that people often seek help for immense sorrow that starts surfacing right around Thanksgiving, right around now. Now, is that you? Do you struggle not to count your many losses, counting them one by one? I'm talking about deep losses. I'm not talking about losing your goldfish or your hamster. But have you, have you experienced deep loss, losing a, a husband or, or a, a daughter? Or, or maybe your, your cat or dog is a big deal for you. Now, normally I joke about cats not counting here, but for some of you, cats are real. And you love them. And maybe you love them deeply and other people don't get the kind of sorrow that you sense over the loss of of your animal. Maybe your wife has lost her memory of you. Maybe you failed a test that you believe has taken your dream career away and it's out of grasp. Maybe it feels like your health has been taken or even the joy in your marriage is gone and you can't get it back. Maybe it's your parents. Your parents have been taken from you, or or you've lost a car, your job, your house, or D, all of the above. Tell me something. How do you respond 
When you, re- when you experience losses that feel as deep and dark as the ocean, you know, the world can bring the strongest men to their knees in grief. But check out how this band of fearless warriors responds when everything is taken. First, did you catch it? They wept, and then they wanted blood. They wanted to stone the good king. Grief is a crazy thing, and I've learned a lot more than I've ever wanted to know about it over the last decade. But here's one important lesson that I have learned. Hurt people hurt people. It's just a reality. When you are hurting, you want others to hurt. Someone needs to be blamed. Blood needs to be shed. Uh, I have a, a friend, Justin, who said that his grandfather used to warn him, be careful around wounded animals. They're dangerous, and they'll fight for their lives even when you're trying to help them. Oh, and son, by the way, people are just the same. Now, this is very human. You, you see this in the scriptures. You remember in Israel. You remember that, that Moses was leading them in, in the wilderness, and, and when the people were hungry and scared, they wanted to stone him. You remember when Jesus showed up on the scene to a, an Israel nation that was under the rule of Rome. Jesus came promising to be the, the God-man, claiming to be the God-man, and, and, and that he was the Messiah that they'd been waiting for. And what did they want to do? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, wanted to stone him. But don't miss this. When we feel like much has been taken from us, and we're out for blood, what we really need is a generous king. That's what needs to show up, a generous king. Did you catch a second important detail in these verses? David is not exempt from the losses. Now we know where the story is going. David will be king. We have the end of the story. They're living it in real time. But David experiences in the midst of this story deep loss. And he experiences this with his men, his brothers. He loses his wives. He's a brother who understands the despair of brokenness and bitter pain of loss with his brothers. You know, this is a king who knows what it feels like to be rejected by all. Even the Philistines have rejected him, and he has had everything taken for him in a moment. He knows what it's like in his darkest moment to have his very own people turn and want to stone him. You know, this Messiah isn't hiding from Goliath behind his men like Saul was. He's leading from the front. He fights for them and he weeps with them. He is with them in their victories and he is with them in their losses. You know, I still remember the first time I recognized that, that Hebrews was calling Jesus, that greater Messiah that has come, our brother. I said, surely I must have misread that. You're telling me that the Alpha and the Omega is my brother. The one who holds the universe up by his very word of power, and if he were to let it go, it would all fall apart. That guy's my, my brother. The, the guy that we are told is the king of kings and lord of lords who reigns over all things is my brother. And yet, when you read Hebrews 3, 17 to 18, we find that Jesus is indeed our brother Messiah. There, the author of Hebrews says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is our greater Messiah who is a king and a priest who knows what it's like to lose everything. He is our brother. But he's different and that he is the king who gave it all for us, for his enemies to make us his brothers. But catch, catch what this good king does in his distress. Did you see in the end it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord. But how did he do that? Second, notice David seeks the voice of the Lord in verses seven to 10. He seeks the voice of the Lord. Now, don't miss this. This is a different look for David. This is not David from chapter 27, where things are getting hot, And he just decides in his own heart, he tells himself, I need to run to the Philistines lest Saul will slay me and kill me and cause me to perish. He didn't listen to God's voice there. He just ran and acted. He ran and raided the peoples of the land like the Amalekites. For 16 months, he carried out the mafia-style policy of leaving no witnesses. David didn't seek God's face. He became a maverick. Now, this grief and distress was a consequence of his sin that began back there. And now the men want to kill the king, but the king wants to hear God's voice in verses 7 to 10. Notice what they say. This is what it says. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook Besor where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Besor. See, David doesn't just look different from David here, David actually looks way different than Saul. Now the way that chapters 27 to 30 are written together, there's a break in chapter 28 for an episode with King Saul. And you remember there, Saul is running to a witch of Endor. Sounds like a kind of character out of Lord of the Rings or something. But he is pursuing her to tell him what to do as the Philistine armies that are gathering and have surrounded him are about to come upon him. And he has to because he's killed all of the priests except Abiathar, who's with David. Saul essentially ripped the phone cord out of the wall. Um, That illustration might not make sense. Kids, uh, let me just give you a brief history lesson. There, There used to be a cord that connected every phone to the wall. No cord, no signal, no talkie, right? If you ripped the cord out of the wall, you couldn't use the phone anymore. Well, here it's, it's very similar. It, it seems as though Saul, in killing the priest, has ripped that line that he had to God out of the wall. Priests were the ones who mediated relationship between the people and God. And so basically Saul is saying, I don't need to hear from God anymore. Saul kills those who can draw people close to God. Uh, Deuteronomy says also that seeking a word from a witch is an abomination. So Saul, Saul's not a good guy. That's too tall Saul. But simultaneously, as he is seeking counsel from this witch, it seems like David is also 
saying to Abiathar, get God on the line. Do you see it? I want to hear from God. David is distressed. Everything has been taken from him. And he calls for Abiathar, the priest. And I love what he says, grab the ephod, right? The ephod. This was what he would use. He would wear as he, he would go and he would uh, seek to make communication between the king and God. He probably had with him the Urim and the Thummim. I don't know what those are. We don't know what those are. But they were used to communicate with God. And here it simply means that, that David sought the voice of God in the way that God prescribed in his distress. This is a good move. When, when distress hits, you're, you're pursuing God. You're not becoming disobedient, but you're seeking God in the means that he's, he's provided. See, David doesn't just act like he did in 1 Samuel 27. Dad asked, David asked God whether he should chase after the Amalekites or not. And God tells him, pursue and you shall surely rescue. And David trusts and obeys. Now here's how much he trusts and obeys. As they are chasing the enemy, they are already exhausted. 200 warriors are like, we can't make the journey. We've got to stop. And he says, stay here with the baggage. We're going to keep going. Now this is a great army. But in doing that, what David is saying is, catch this, it's not about numbers now. God has given us the victory. We are going in the power of the Lord. See, David's response here reminds me so much as he looks to God in his time of distress. It reminds me of a scene between Jesus and Peter as he gives some hard sayings. And you'll remember that a lot of the disciples left. And then Jesus looked to them and said, are you going to leave me to Peter? And in John 6, 68, Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? There is no one else that has the keys to eternal life like you. And here David in his distress seeks God's word. He is hopeless and he looks to the only one who gives him hope that is God himself. And once he receives it, he believes it. Do you see how that works? He, he receives it and then believes it. He doesn't believe it and then receive it. That's the way it goes. God has spoken. You trust that word. You trust that it will come true rather than sort of saying what's going to come true and it happening. He faces his enemies trusting God's word. But what about you? You know, we have a greater priest king now who gives us direct access to God, but we have already received his word in the scriptures. We've received it. We're not like Saul in the distress of his life where he's looking to, to witches, Ouija boards, fortune tellers, or the Benihin prayer line for help. We look to God himself and his word. That's our word. That word is our sword. You know, that's what we grab when danger hits and when God says to go and trust me. We grab the word of God. Ephesians 6.17 calls the Bible the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.17 says the Bible is sufficient to equip us for every good work. And Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Are you confident in God's clear word to you in the same way that David was? David trusted God's word and he was gone. So how ready are you for facing the losses of this life with the confidence in God's word as your sword? You know, sometimes I, I know life can get terrifying, but it only gets scarier 
if we lose a grip on the word of God and our confidence in who God is. So are you sharpening that sword daily? And how, how are you doing it? How, how are you sharpening the word? Are you, are you having devotions daily in the word? Are you here on Sundays during the preaching to, to hold, um, and as you're listening, you're listening because you're trying to sharpen your, your sword. It's not like you're daring the pastor to keep you interested and engaged in the word of God. You are actually strongly compelled to listen to the word of God because you believe your life and the lives of others depends on it, not just today or tomorrow, but forever. Do you take advantage of women's Bible study? You know, Stephanie Franklin, if, if you're a woman, she's actually written a, a biblical theology of womanhood that she's been going through this semester. A great thing for you to come and to study, to think about what it means to be a woman living to the glory of God. Or what about Wednesday nights? We've been going through 1 John, and we've been talking about what it looks like to have assurance in your salvation. In fact, we encourage you that God actually wants you to have assurance that you're really a believer. Can you see how that might be something that would be helpful in sharpening your sword, preparing you for what might come at you tomorrow? And what about the gifted teachers that the Lord has, has given us at Trinity Bible Church who are teaching in our equipping classes? Sunday mornings, going through the Word of God, teaching you the Word of God, sharpening that sword. Uh, or these other E2 classes that we have where we're going through difficult topics like the providence of God. Are you going and listening and preparing? You don't know what's coming. You don't know the enemy that'll show up tomorrow. Are you ready? Are you ready with God's word? You know, as a church, we're constantly trying to help you prepare for life. So are you gripping the sword of the spirit like your life and the life of your family depends on it? Or do you look like Saul who's over in the corner shaking up his magic eight ball? I think we've been called to pursue the word of God. David's a good king who seeks God in his distress. But not only that, take note of another way David is a different king. In verses 11 to 5, we see that David give, give, gives to the Egyptian. He give, give, gives. And you can't miss the irony here. David is on his way to face an enemy who has taken his people off into slavery, and he happens upon an Egyptian slave. You remember the Egyptians, right? The guys who took Israel into slavery, like that's how they became famous. And here he finds this Egyptian slave on the road. And the Egyptians made it big in the Bible by enslaving Israel and placing heavy burdens on their backs. The Egyptian king took, took, took before God rescued his people. But catch what happens here when David finds this Egyptian. Verse 11, verses 11 and 12, this is what it says. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. I mean, you just can't miss this. David raised this Egyptian from the dead after three days and three nights. Okay, figuratively. But his Amalekite master had left him for dead when he got sick. It's not a loving, caring, generous master. See, bad kings take, take, take. But David doesn't use water boring or slap him around to take what he needs from him. No, David gives him water. And he gives him bread. And water and bread would have been sufficient to revive him. But then he gives him cake. I mean, where do you get a cake when there's no Costco? He's been running for like 100 miles and he's like, hey, get the cake, get that kid some cake. And he's eating the cake. He's like, I don't know who this guy is, but I like the way he rolls. 
See, David's a generous king who comes not for what he can take, but what he can give. And once revived, he tells David that they raided the Negeb of the Cherethites and the Negeb of Caleb and burned Ziklag with fire, a.k.a. David's house. And David asked him to lead him to the Amalekites. And the Egyptian says, sure, just, you know, one thing, maybe two, like, don't, don't kill me and don't give me back to my master because he has no cake. Now, sometimes God answers our prayers in some surprising ways, doesn't he? Have you ever had God surprise you, not only with his generosity, but the surprising way that he provided for you? And God does it all the time. I see some biblical examples. You'll remember that he used Jesus' death on the cursed cross to bring eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Nobody saw that coming. And then he redeemed enemies of Christ, like Paul, to take the gospel to Gentiles who were far from God. Nobody saw that coming. Do you think David imagined an Egyptian would help him deliver his people from being enslaved by the Amalekites? But there's a fourth thing we see here. Notice this. God's king is victorious to the glory of God. Verse 16. Pick up the story. Here's what he says. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether great or small. Sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds. And the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Did you catch that? The Amalekites, they thought the Philistines, David, and Israel were all preoccupied. They had come in for an easy kill. They were off partying. So they spread out across the land and had a a drunken party to celebrate just how smart they were in their worldly wisdom. Look what we did. When they were least suspecting, David relentlessly struck them down all day and all night. Now, you know the enemy was great. Here's how you know. Did you catch how many people David took with him into battle? At this point, 400 And did you notice that David relentlessly struck them down day and night and not a man escaped except 400 young men on camels? Wait, only 400 men? But you only had 400 men. So if the only is 400, then that means there was some great multitude much greater than 400 that made 400 look small. And he says that small bit, they escaped into the distance barely with their lives. You know, that tells us that David defeated a massive army. Not only that, did you catch that David recovered all that was lost? Everything. Nothing was missing. Every wife, every son, every daughter, every donkey recovered, and then some. Now, this Messiah rescued all without exception. Now, here's something you, you may have missed, though. Did you catch how David-centered this text is? It is so David-centered. If you looked at the text, you might have missed this one detail. It says David struck them down. David recovered all the Amalekites took. David rescued his two wives. David brought back all. David also captures all. And they said in the end, this is whose spoil? David's. 
Every wife, son, daughter, all the spoil and every animal, all was accountable. And the men drove the animals before him crying, this is David's spoil. David has done this. And David said, aren't you so glad you didn't stone me? No, just kidding. But don't feel too bad about the Amalekites. See, the Amalekites, they were an ancient foe of the people of God. They were notorious for wickedness. They represent the forces of evil that stand in opposition to God and his people. You'll remember that the Amalekites actually attacked the people of God when they were wandering in the wilderness back in Exodus 17. Do you remember that story? That's where uh, they are attacked and they fight back. And Moses is lifting his arms. And as long as he lifts his arms, Joshua is defeating the Amalekites. But when they start to lower, they begin to make a comeback. And so as his arms get tired, he has to have a couple of buddies, Aaron and Hur, come and hold them up. And as he holds them up, they defeat and they win. And after that defeat, what we find is that God promises Moses that he would eventually blot out the Amalekites one day. The Amalekites will be dealt with. And hundreds of years later, God told Saul to take out the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. That king disobeyed. But here is God's spirit-anointed king going out and fighting the Amalekites, fulfilling God's purposes in part. Isn't God so patient? I can barely wait in and out for my order to come in. And this is God saying, I'm going to deal with this. And here is centuries later, God dealing with it. Here we see the mighty arm of God was with God's King David. The victory was God's. And God's king rescued, not with sword or spear, but in the power of the Lord. And he recovered all that was lost and then some, and all of it was to the glory of God. Did you catch that? David is continuously pointing credit towards God. So what is God's king going to do with the spoils of war, though? Will he take them? Will he give out quid pro quo? But I love this. David's generosity, actually, it it kind of offends and shocks his men. Did you see that? Uh, You'll notice that David gives away non-participation awards in verses 21 to 31. First, he he, he meets the baggage guys. Now, you'll remember those 200 guys, they were too tired to keep on. They were too exhausted. And so uh, they stayed with the baggage as the others went to a fight, the Amalekites. Catch this, they didn't fight. They simply protected the bags. And you wonder how God's king is going to deal with them. Well, in verse 21, he he greets them. He doesn't chastise them. But then you'll notice that the others, those who fought, they speak in verses 22 to 25. And notice the outrage and, and what they think should be done. Here's what they say. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said this, because they did not go with us, We will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Now, I'm not a big fan of participation trophies. Seems like you should get a trophy for actually doing something. But I'm even less in favor of non-participation trophies. 
I mean, when you're not even there with the team, you're not even on the team, you don't even have the jersey. I mean, just imagine if after the NBA Finals, they handed out rings to both sides, and then the fans and the crowds. I mean, if if everybody gets an award, then kind of nobody does, right? See, these guys, they didn't even fight. And that's the thought of these wicked and worthless fellows, or sons of Belial, a phrase we've heard before, who actually fought and thought they deserved a bigger take. I mean, that's what they're asking for. Can I have a bigger take than the rest of the guys? In other words, I don't just want to take from them, I want to take from my brothers. Don't miss this detail. The greedy sons of Eli and the Baal were called sons of Belial, worthless fellows. And each of them were greedy because they lost sight of their generous God. See, these men thought they deserved more because they fought. They only wanted to give the baggage handlers their families, not the spoil. No cake for you, right? And, and, and here what we find is they could have even used Scripture to justify their position. Have you ever done that? Like taken a position, started using Scripture, said maybe there are other Scriptures, but these are the ones that seem relevant right now. And they could have pointed to Proverbs 6.6. 6. You know, go to the ant, O sluggard, and consider her ways. Or what about 2 Thessalonians 3.10? Not available then, available now. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And Levitical law even distinguishes between those who fight and those who don't. So David's generosity here, it's not actually according to law, but it's actually a law of grace that he is actually enacting. The one who fights and the one with the baggage gets equal share. How is that fair? Well, it's it's actually very fair and very gracious if you understand that the victory is the Lord's. See, David understood that they defeated a giant enemy only because of the power of the Lord, not their own strength. And as they understood that they were actually those who had experienced the grace of God more, the more gracious they would become. See, those men who fought were worthless because their eyes were more on their net worth than the God who gave them all they possessed. They were stingy, not grateful. They looked like Nabal and Saul. But David calls these worthless men. Here's another act of stunning grace. Notice he calls them brothers in verse 23. Worthless men he speaks to as brothers. What grace and kindness. And he reminds them that what they have was was given to them by the Lord. That it's not theirs, it's God's. So we should all be grateful because it's not our effort that has won it. It is actually the work of the Lord and the power of his strength. See, when we understand that the victory is the Lord's, it makes us grateful and generous people. It doesn't make us stingy and angry. Because people who know grace, they show grace. But David, even gives gifts to the elders in Judah. Did you catch that in verses 26 to 31? You'll notice the grace continues. David sends a present from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord to the elders of Judah. They weren't even with the baggage. They were over back in Judah, away from the lands that David found his men in and where they were fighting. Now, you'll notice that all those places that were read earlier, uh, really grateful for that, so I don't have to read them. But they all are around this area of Hebron where David would set up his first throne. Don't miss this. David's not greasing palms or offering quid pro quo. David's doing what kings do. He's fighting for his people 
And he's sending back generous gifts of the spoils of his enemies. Because that's what Messiahs do. David is saying the king is coming. The king is coming to his throne. It is time. Now, as we close, I I think there's some things that we need to draw from this by way of practical application. The first is, look with me quickly in Romans 8. Now, we, we think about the nature of what's happening for us as New Testament Christians as we read the story of David. And here we find that David was a generous king. A generous king who trusted in the power of the Lord. But David eventually fell. He eventually took censuses and and, and put trust in numbers. Uh, He was a man who later put confidence in his money. He was uh, one who uh, sinned in the future. Uh, He proved that he was not ultimately the, the ultimate Messiah that we all long for. But he was one that pointed towards a greater king, King Jesus. A king who came not for what he could get, but what he could give. And I love the connection between the one who gave all and our generosity and our confidence in his generosity in Romans 8. This is what he says after talking about how God has saved us and the glorious plan of salvation. He, he says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, and, and we just saw that he is, who can be against us? He who did not spare or take or keep his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give all things? Do do you have that vision of God? And that's the reason that he sent his son, was to save us. It was a massive display of how generous our God is. A God who does not hold back from his people. A God who says, if I gave you my son, that is the beginning, the first fruits. And there is much more to come. Is that the God that you believe in? See, God's king is generous because he is a small picture of his great God who is really generous. Not only that, notice second. Not only is God generous, but we know that it is God who defeated our spiritual enemies through Jesus, his king. At the cross, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him being Jesus. Jesus is the triumphant king who goes into battle and fights for us. And he disarmed the principalities and the, the powers of darkness that we might be found victorious. Not only that, we find that Jesus is our victorious King of grace. Third, in 2 Corinthians 2.14, where we are told, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. What's that fragrance? It is the fragrance of salvation from sin. We are a people who have been rescued. You see it? Jesus is our great king. Fourth, the king of grace promises that he will restore what has been taken from us and then some. You remember? It wasn't just that they received back the spoils that had been taken, but it was and then some. The spoil of the other peoples that they had raided and taken. We find in the New Testament that we are promised that our losses become promises. When we face those deep losses, those deep losses... 
Those losses that we begin to remember right about this time around Thanksgiving. What has been taken? We should be reminded that according to the gospel, those losses actually become promises of things that God will restore. In fact, in Mark 10, 29 to 31, this is a text that's not even really ultimately about the beauty and, and, and the promise of what is to come as far as replenishing what has been lost. It's really about the centrality of Jesus and the cross and what he has done for us. But in the midst of that, he makes this statement, Jesus does, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers, sisters and mothers, children and lands with persecutions they will face. They will lose much in this time. And in the age to come, they will receive what? Eternal life. In other words, the the losses, they pale in comparison to what is to come. And and that is the confidence, the message of the gospel, the good news of the good king. It's that whatever it is that you're calculating right now, the math is off if you have not seen what is to come. Fourth, or fifth, every good gift comes from God through his king to his people. Every good gift. I think that in those moments when we are thinking about loss and despair and we forget the goodness of the king, we need to actually stop counting our losses one by one and start counting our blessings one by one and start recognizing the pervasive goodness of God. And that's what losses can do. What is taken can cause us to forget what we have. What has been given? And if it's God's stuff anyway, then how can we get sad? I believe it was John Wesley that once got a report about his house burning down. And uh, he said, well, it was God's anyway, and then like turned and went and started preaching again. That's not me. But there's a true sense in which if we really understand the pervasive goodness of God then when our houses burn down, we'll be reminded of the goodness of our God. God gives good gifts through his king to his people. Uh, James 1, 16 to 17 says, every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. Spiritual gifts come from God. Jesus is generous in giving Christians his spirit. I mean, how do you trump that? He gives us himself. We become the place where God himself dwells. What a gift. And that gift comes with gifts. The Spirit gives gifts, gifts of service, like hospitality and greeting. We're about to spend time in a meal that's been prepared by people, led by the Spirit, to prepare for us to enjoy one another's company. Why? Because the Spirit of God rests here. We have people who have been given the gift of preaching and teaching and discernment. Why? Well, because the Spirit of God dwells here. And what are those gifts for but the building up of the body? Did you catch that? The spiritual gifts that you have, they're not really even for you. They're for those that you are building up, the church. You see it? We have a generous king who gives lavishly so that we can give lavishly to others. The person who greets on Sunday and the person who teaches on Sunday, they both have received the same grace and have the same inheritance that is coming. What a good day we have to look forward to, right? And he doesn't check our gifts at the door. He says, no, it's okay. I mean, I gave that to you anyway. I don't want that thing back. See, Jesus is generous. See, I hope Jesus loves. I hope Jesus loves Kanye West. And that Kanye West loves Jesus. But Jesus doesn't need Kanye. 
He doesn't even need Tim Tebow. And, and they'd say, I think the same if they know the grace of God. That Jesus doesn't need the greatest musician ever. God is the greatest musician ever. He doesn't need really gifted football players. He is God. He is all-powerful. He's not impressed whenever you, like, throw a chop block. See, we need God. He doesn't need us. God doesn't need our gifts. God gives gifts because we need God's gifts. God also gives material gifts. You know, the, the, the money that we have in our wallets, the money that we gave to Harvest Offering, that we give to Harvest Offering, that we give week after week, you know, it's hard because I know you're, you're going to give and you're thinking I've got to provide for this person and that person and that person. And if I don't do wisely, then, then man, God, you know, I know he cares for sparrows, but, you know, my kid really has expensive taste. I don't know if he knows about that sparrow. And, and you start to ask, maybe I need to be a little more stingy. And you don't recognize and you forget that God owns it all. You're not being stingy with your money. You're being stingy with God's money, right? We need to be wise, but we need to be generous. And our, what we do with our money says something about who God is and how we view God. But six, the greatest defeat, the greatest victory was won by Christ against sin, death, and the devil at the cross. The greatest deliverance is from God's wrath. And all of that is because we have a generous God who gave his son. If you're here this morning and you heard me talk about money and you missed the point, the point is, is that we are sinners before a holy God who need to be saved. And the only reason that any of us have the ability to be saved as sinners against a, a holy God is because he is a generous God who gave his son, his son to die for us, to die in our place on the cross so that we might be forgiven by God, so that we might become children of God who eat lavishly at his table. In fact, this morning we're about to take communion. And this is a meal for believers, people who have been baptized, who have put their faith in Jesus, who have joined the community of God's people and say, I want to be held accountable until that last day because I want to make it to the end when Jesus comes back. I don't want to just eat at the communion table. I want to eat at the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's why we eat at this table. And if, if you haven't been baptized, put your faith in Christ, you don't know what that means, in a moment, this is a meal. Just let it pass you on by. But I want you to know that this is a meal that we want all to be able to take part of. And so if you are not able to do that today, you can't say that Jesus is your Savior. Don't leave without talking to me. I would love nothing more than to tell you how you can become a child of this generous God. Because catch this, if you're not his child, you're his enemy. And if you're, if you're not his child and you're his enemy, then these gifts and his king is not for you. But if you're for his king, then he is fully for you. So don't leave here today without putting your faith in this Christ. Let me pray for us.